Good evening. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and this is the Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions? We've got answers. Family law legal experts Vince Davis and attorney Raj Matani will be answering your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and other divorce-related issues. Good evening, Raj. How are you? Good evening, Vince. Doing great. Uh, It's been a hectic week here at the office, but uh, I'm excited to help some of our listeners today and uh, give people some information on family law. Great. You know, last week, Raj, we started, we've been experimenting with uh, different formats, and we're going to continue the format that we used last night. Uh, Folks are emailing us questions or calling in and asking questions or, um, you know, emailing us questions from our website. So I'm just going to start with the first uh, question, Raj, and see where we go from there, okay? Sounds great. First question is, my husband has been abusing me for many years. I've been afraid for a long time, but I'm finally looking into getting a divorce. Is there any possibility he will get custody of our three children? Uh, yeah, Vince, this is a, a, a great question that we get uh, often. Sorry, you were saying? No, go ahead. So I I get this question a lot uh, with potential new clients and even for clients who we've had for a long time, uh, you know, family law and, and divorce is one of those things that's always evolving and the situations affecting the parties can always change. So, um, <laughs> like the best answer uh, that we used to give in law school, the answer to this question is it depends. Um, family law is not one of those things where you can point to a specific uh, case citation or statute and say, because of this, the case will turn on, on these factors. So um, let me take this question sort of piece by piece and, and we can go through it. Um, the first part, uh, her husband has been abusing her for many years and she's been afraid for a long time. What that signals to me is that she should maybe really consider um, filing for a domestic violence restraining order. Um, among the factors that are considered in a restraining order are uh, whether there is imminent harm or uh, abuse to a to a party, and, or recent acts of abuse as well. And this all falls under the uh, Domestic Violence Protection Act and Family Code Section 6200. So, um, if if she's actually afraid and um, has been suffering the abuse, whether physical, emotional, verbal. Um, or even digitally through social media and text messaging, which is an emerging area of the law, um, she should really consider filing for a domestic violence restraining order. And then once you're into that whole process, whether a domestic violence restraining order or a divorce, custody is one of the things that can always be decided. So um, she could ask for temporary custody orders through the restraining order, or if she files for a divorce, uh, she can immediately ask for uh, temporary custody orders pending the outcome of the divorce through a uh, what's called a request for order. So uh, through both of these two situations, there is a possibility that the issue of custody can come up. Now, once the issue of custody is present and before the court, uh, then you move on to how does the court make that decision as to who gets custody. For, a fa- for people who have been listening to our show for a long time, they hear me beat this drum uh, very often. There's two different forms of custody. There's legal custody and physical custody. It sounds like from this um, uh, caller's question that the main issue is physical custody. Um, and physical custody is specifically dealing with where the children will live for a predominant portion of the time. And... Um, in deciding that issue, the court's going to look at a multitude of factors, um, and these all fall under uh, Family Code Section 3011. What the court is going to take a look at is uh, what is in the best interest of the children. And in determining what's in the best interest of the children, the court's going to take a look at uh, 
what's in their uh, best interest of the child's health, safety, welfare, um, where they go to school, what parent has the best ability between their work schedule and their home schedule to be around the children the most they can. Um, and in this case specifically also, if there is a finding of domestic violence, that could be very um, probative on the issue of custody and uh, where, where the kids will live. So uh, for a person like this, uh, and we're going to get into this I think later in the show, Vince, but for a person like this, it's really critical that they uh, seek the advice of an attorney uh, because this case can be very multi-layered, multifaceted, and uh, the guidance of an experienced attorney can help them through each part and properly craft the documents and pleadings that are necessary to address those issues. You know, um, Raj, recently I had was doing some legal research, and, and it, uh, someone had asked me a question about um, the fact that uh, they had moved out of the house because of the husband's domestic violence against them. And mm-hmm. uh, they left everything in the home, including the children. And wow. there is a, there's a family code section, 3046A2, and it says in determining custody or visitation, the court must not consider a parent's absence or relocation from the family residence in the absence or relocation if the absence or relocation is own, owing to actual or threatened domestic violence by the other party. So in other words, if the husband uh, forces the wife out of the home, he can't later use that against the wife in trying to gain custody through um, through the family court. Now, yeah, there's um, a rebuttable... That- Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Vince. No, there's a rebuttable presumption in Family Code Section 3044A um, that there is detriment um, to the perpetrator of the of the domestic violence, and and it may be presumed that the perpetrator um, cannot uh, have custody or visit or or in sometimes some situations limited visitation with the child exactly Vince um, you know when there's the domestic violence is a very serious issue uh, both in our society and taken very seriously by the court so um, you know these code sections specifically address you know what the court might consider in making these determinations and even if you're a pro-per litigant um, and you can't find the code section or you're not uh, you know, aware that these things exist, um, the court is aware. And so once there's a domestic violence finding, it, it really um, uh, paints a stain over the whole entire case and gives a lot of uh, presumptions and advantages to the party uh, you know, who is protected. So um, it had, a finding of domestic violence can impact uh, payments of support, it can impact uh, custody, it can impact a whole bunch of different things. So um, if, if you're a party who's really suffering, or in your example, Vince, someone who's actually moved out, um, it's really critical that you um, sort of take the steps to protect yourself and file for domestic violence restraining order and um, you know, seek all protections that you have under the law. You know, and just so our listeners will know, I want to read to the listeners how domestic violence is defined for purposes of the presumption uh, that the perpetrator should not have um, custody of the child. Purposes of giving rise to the presumption of detriment under Family Code Section 3044, a person has, quote, perpetrated domestic violence, unquote, when he or she is found by the court to have done any of the following. Number one, intentionally or recklessly caused or attempted to cause bodily injury or sexual assault. Number two, placed a person in reasonable apprehension of imminent serious bodily injury to that person or to another. Or number three, engaged in any behavior involving but not limited to threatening, striking, harassing, destroying personal property, or distributing or disturbing the peace of another. Now, 
a lot of us think about domestic violence as physical altercations. But what I have just read, most of domestic violence is defined by things other than physical altercations. For example, um, the sexual assault. For example, um, placing a person in reasonable apprehension of imminent serious bodily injury destroying another person's property or disturbing the peace of another. So domestic violence is defined in the family code, just not so when our listeners are uh, considering seeking uh, custody and seeking that domestic violence restraining order, they should be aware of this and perhaps Google California Family Code Section 3044. Yeah, definitely, Vince. You know, I had a a case recently where... um, it was, there was a finding of domestic violence based purely on text messaging. Um, now, the text messaging was pretty aggressive and pretty egregious, and no um, uh, physical altercations had happened, but uh, just on the text messaging alone, the uh, protected party was able to demonstrate that they were in fear and then that uh, you know the volume and consistency of the messaging was enough to, to make a finding of, the, of uh, domestic violence. So... Um, it's like you said. It's not just the physical uh, element. It can be the emotional and um, psychological element as well. And uh, you know, so people who are looking for protection or realizing exactly what's going on, uh, you know, in their lives, need to consider all these arms uh, as to how they can uh, protect themselves. Very good. Very good. Okay, let's go to the second question, Raj. The second question from a. Um audience member tonight was, I have two children, one in elementary school and the other in high school. My ex-wife wants to pull them out of the school here for them to attend school in the city she just moved to. How will it be decided in court? Do we even have to go to court? (laughs) What do you think, Raj? Um, Let's start with the end of that question before we get into the minutiae of it. Um, if you're, even if you're not divorced, if you're just a party who's apart or um, have some sort of amicable relationship, there's never a requirement that you have to go to court. The court is there to help you in the event that you guys cannot reach an agreement or have some specific issue that uh, still parts the two parties. Um, the court encourages settlement. It encourages mediation. It encourages parties to try and work together. Um, in fact, you know, every time when I'm in court, judges will uh, give priority to parties who have settled their case. They'll stop the rest of the court's calendar and bring in a party who has settled their case and save the court's time and resources. And then when uh, the judge is writing the order, I think without fail, every time a judge on the court's record thanks the party saying we appreciate your ability to work together and that is in, it's a good sign to your children that you can work together. So if two parties are having this issue about a move away or any custody issue and they can work it out themselves, um, they should do so. Um, I would encourage them to always do that in writing and if you're going to do it in writing, have it notarized so it's enforceable. But uh, if you can do it outside of court, 100% go ahead and do that. Um, now let's get to the part that if you do end up in court, how will a move-away case be decided? So there's a couple different factors here um, and a couple different uh, you know, background things that depend on how the court's going to decide the case. Um, for, the first thing is uh, whether or not the parties have a custody and visitation order. Um, you know, Like I've been saying, in custody and visitation, there's two parts. There's joint legal custody and joint physical or and physical custody. Um, if one party has uh, joint legal custody or has primary physical custody, I'm sorry, um, they get to uh, they have a presumption in their favor that allows them to make a lot of the decisions. So what are the decisions that are involved in, in legal custody? These are all things related to the uh, health, education, and welfare of the child. So things like doctors, things like uh, medical appointments, 
uh, treatment choices, um, uh, where the kids go to school, additional school activities, um, all these kinds of things that uh, are substantive to a child's life besides just the everyday of who they're living with. You know, sort of the day-to-day events that uh, enrich a child's life, not just, uh, you know, where they're staying. So when you have this issue of legal custody, if one parent has primary legal custody, they have a presumption that basically allows them to sort of make these decisions. Um, but if you're the parent without primary legal custody, it doesn't mean that you're out of out of luck. Um, you can always file uh, emergency motions or motions to the court to be heard on their normal calendar to have the court decide, hey, you know, this person is um, moving with my children or doing something, uh, sending them to a doctor that I don't like or engaging in a treatment philosophy that I don't like, and I want the court to address these issues. Okay, so uh, the issue of a move-away falls under this um, umbrella of legal custody. So um, if the parties can't agree, what is the court going to look at in terms of making a decision as to where the child should stay? This sort of goes back to all of our uh, best interest factors. What would happen is either the party who's looking to move should file a request to move with the children, or the party opposing the move should file a motion to thwart or end the, the move of the children. Uh, if no agreement is made at, at uh, mediation or previous to the hearing, the court's going to have set it for an evidentiary hearing. And at that evidentiary hearing, they're going to take a look at a multitude of factors as to whether or not the move, move away is in the best interest of the children. So what are some of those factors? Um, obviously, the distance of the move, the age of the children, uh, child's relationship with both the parents, these are some big factors. Um, there's also the, the timeliness of the request. If the request is being made in the middle of the school year, um, that's going to be a big factor for the court to consider at whether a move should be done immediately or after the school year. Um, for instance, if uh, I think in this, in this scenario or in this question, uh, one of the children uh, uh, is of younger age and one's in the uh, of a higher school age. Yeah, one's in elementary and one's in high school. So, uh, depending on where the kids are in their education, uh, for instance, if you have a senior in high school, having them finish out their senior year at that specific high school prior to a move would be very, a very important factor for the court to consider. Uh, some other additional factors: if you have a child who's of an appropriate age, um, the child can testify and let the court know. Where they want to live, where they want to figure, uh, where they want to complete school, and uh, you know, sort of their opinion on the issue. So, uh, in these move away cases, they're sort of highly contentious, uh, uh, a big battle between the two parties, and um, it's really going to come down to that evidentiary hearing and figuring out uh, whether the change in school is appropriate, whether the distance of the move is appropriate, and um, how that impacts custody and visitation for both of the parties. Have you had any experience with this, Ben? Hello? Hello. Sorry about that. I was having some technical difficulties. Raj, I have had some experience with the move-away uh, scenarios. And um, in the old days, um, the court used to examine what was called the expedient and necessary test. Um, but in 2004, uh, the Supreme Court of California decided a case called In Re Marriage of La Musga, or La Mouche, as some people pronounce it. <laughs> and that, that was a 2004, 2004 case. I, I think the court both clarified and shifted its position uh, regarding the burden of proof and easing the burden of rebuttal evidence required uh, by the remaining parent. Uh, most notably, uh, the effect of the move itself on the relationship between um, the child and the remaining parent can now be considered a significant enough factor under the right circumstances uh, to result in a change of custody in the event of a move. 
So in, in a lot of cases, um, I see where one parent, uh, you know, has to move and and now the court is examining the relationship between the remaining parent and the child. And in some cases, the court can now shift and give the child to the parent who's remaining here in California rather than allowing the move, you know, out of state or out of um, county or out of uh, the country even. Um, but, you know, that was still uh, tempered by the uh, court's ongoing duty to decide custody based upon the child's best interest. Um, you know, our particular question that we're addressing, Raj, I got the feeling from this question that the move wasn't going to be very far away, but it was something like moving from Santa Monica to West Covina, you know, right. in the county of Los Angeles, in the county of Los Angeles. So in terms of that, what do you think the court would do? Uh, and, and of course, we don't have all of the facts, but what do you think yeah. the court would do um, for a child who is 13? Excuse me. Um, well, he didn't actually give us the ages, but for two children where the, uh, who, I guess they are, one's in elementary school and one's in high school. So what do you think the court would do in this situation? You know, Vince, I can only uh, draw on my most recent experience. And uh, when, it, when the move is so close, uh, so close in distance, really what the court uh, is going to look at is, um, you know, what is the impact on the move on the ability of the parents to execute custody? And then uh, what are the facts or what evidence does the parent asking for the move or asking for the change have that the new school is better than the old school. So, for instance, the court's going to look at um, how long is the drive from, uh, let's say the children were to remain with one parent, how long is the drive to take them and drop them off? When custody exchanges happen and if they're supposed to happen at the school, how long is that going to take for one parent to, to change? So, um, you know, it really depends on, even though the two cities might be closed, it depends on the school that they're choosing and it depends on you know, the, really the quality of that school, I think the court gives a lot of weight to um, a lot of weight to that factor as whether or not the school that they're choosing um, is a quality school and the ability of the parents to be involved in that educational process. You know, like you said, based on these case histories, um, the courts have, uh, have changed the burden of proof, but what they are most persuaded by is how it affects the child and how what's in the child's best interest to either continue at one place or whether they'd be better served at this other school. Um, and there's a specific factor known as API that the school, that the, um, is a very significant evidentiary uh, fact that can be presented to the court in showing whether one school has the programs and resources uh, to best provide for a particular child. Um, so it really depends on, on that quality of the school. And if you can prove that the other one is better and the children will probably be better provided for and all those kinds of things, it's, it's highly persuasive. You know, you said a, an interesting thing there, Raj, and you said it depends on the evidence. And in a lot of cases, um, a lot of family law cases, especially in this area, it's determined by the evidence presented by each side. The law is, you know, in this particular area, is, is pretty well settled. Everyone knows what the law is. But the thing that's going to persuade the judge are the facts and how uh, the attorney or the litigant um, weaves those facts into the law to show that the judge, to show the judge that uh, he or she should be deciding in their favor. And I remember being involved in a case where there, it wasn't a move away case, but it was a, a case involving which school the child should attend. And um, the other side had brought, uh, uh, had printed out a bunch of stuff um, from different magazines and off the internet. And uh, they were trying to prove that the school, that their proponent school um, was better. And, um, I objected to the introduction of that 
that evidence as being hearsay and without foundation. I mean, it was just copies of stuff. Who knows where they came from? The judge sustained my objection. In other words, agreed with me. And that information was not allowed to be presented into evidence. And since it was not allowed to be presented in evidence, uh, that parent was not allowed to place the child in the new school and the child remained in the old school. So um, I want our listeners to know that just because you have information doesn't mean that the judge is going to consider it. Um, I was talking to a client today, and uh, she wanted me to present a letter to the judge. And uh, I had a hard time explaining, or perhaps I should say, the client had a hard time accepting <laughs> that you just that you just couldn't submit a letter to the judge. And you know, as much as I tried to explain the rules of evidence, uh, it just didn't make common sense. And I and I agree with her. It, perhaps it doesn't make common sense but those aren't the rules that we're playing by in a court of law. So I thought that was very important when you mentioned evidence. So make sure, listeners, when you go to court that you have admissible evidence. And in order to determine that, you might have to talk to a lawyer who is skilled in you know, the areas of advocacy in, in courts in California. Raj, anything else that you want to add to that question? No, not at this time. Um, I, you know, move-away cases are are being, becoming a greater and greater uh, issue for the court because, you know, we have uh, lots of couples these days who have children but they aren't married. So they're young and they're trying to find a job or trying to survive in this economy. And, and that really impacts, uh, uh, you know, where the kids go to school and, and the living situations and things like that. So um, I'm expecting that we're going to see a lot more of these questions. And um, if anybody out there specifically wants us to address theirs, you know, I encourage them to call our office, and, and we'll, we'd be happy to answer those. Okay, Raj, great. The next question that we have this evening, it says, I'm planning... Oh, no, I skipped that. I skipped one. I divorced <laughs> I my husband. Vince, you're going off notes. <laughs> I divorced my husband about 10 years ago. Our son is now 13 and was recently diagnosed with ADHD and bipolar disorder. Am I able to revisit court and order him to pay more child support to cover these new medical fees? Uh, Vince, what do you this think, is the, Yeah, this is one of the rare times where my answer is going to be somewhat simple, and uh, I'm going to uh, respond with a simple yes. Of course, you... Um, the court has jurisdiction over the issues of child support um, all the way until a child is 18, graduates high school, um, uh, or is 19, and in, in the event that they are a child with special needs, as might be the case here, uh, the court can retain jurisdiction for adult children for a certain amount of time. So uh, for a child who's 13, you can 100% go back to court and have the court consider the issues uh, that are now present. Um, in order to have a court, as a baseline, consider any changes in uh, support or custody or things like that, especially after you have a judgment, um, you have to show two things. You have to show a substantial or material change in circumstances, and you have to show why the position you're presenting to the court is in the best interest of the child. So here, the fact that the child was recently diagnosed with uh, these afflictions, ADHD and bipolar, are definitely changed circumstances. The child is going to have a much different educational path, is going to have a much different medical path, and the costs of these things were not factored into previous child support orders and need to be considered by the court now. So 100%, this client can definitely go to the court and, pre and present uh, you know, these changes. So now it goes over the issue of, well, if you're asking for these changes to child support, what exactly can you, can you ask for? Um, the issue of medical um, expenses for, for a child, it falls under Family Code Section 4062. Uh, Vince, I think uh, you and I are probably both thinking of the same case where this was a significant issue for the both of us, but uh, I'll go ahead and, and 
cite to the section, uh, the court shall make an order as to additional child support for child care costs related to the employment or reasonably necessary education or training uh, for employment skills of the supported party. Also, the reasonable uninsured health care costs for the children as provided under Family Code Section, and I want to get into that as well. Um, and the court may also order as additional child support the costs related to educational or other special needs of the children and travel expenses for visitation. So um, there's direct statutory authority here for the court to consider these add-ons. Um, and so it's really critical. We were just having this conversation about evidence. It's really critical that um, the party asking for these changes present all of this evidence, admissible evidence, to the court that the child has all these new expenses and that support needs to be modified to consider that. Um, for listeners who, who have been back to the show, they know that child support is calculated by a, a formula. Now, that formula um, runs based predominantly based on the income of the two parties. But there is an item at the bottom asking for add-ons. And in that field, you can put in what you want the other side to pay and see how it affects the rest of the support numbers. So, um, you know, when looking for additional support for these kind of medical needs, it's 100% um, necessary to bring it to the attention of the court. And then when you do bring it to the attention of the court, make sure you have all that admissible evidence um, doctor's reports, um, maybe a letter from the school saying uh, uh, what kinds of educational programs are different or a copy of your health insurance plan that shows, you know, what additional costs are there. And uh, like Vince was alluding to earlier, there's ways to make sure that this evidence is considered by the court, but uh, we encourage clients to speak to a legal expert to make sure that those things can be uh, presented. Um, but, you know, this is a, a significant issue for a lot of people, um, and covering medical costs can become very expensive, and it uh, behooves you to ask the court that the other side help you in these in these costs. Do you have anything to add, Vince? Well, Raj, tell us, how would, how would this woman go about getting back into the courtroom to get, you know, uh, additional child support, additional support for the child's ADHD and bipolar disorder? It's, it's sort of redundant, but any time in family court you want to ask for something, you file what's called a request for order. Pretty much everything except for domestic violence uh, is uh, pleaded to the court in the form of a request for order. This is uh, known as form FL300. Now, there are several attachments uh, based on what you're asking for that you can uh, join to this request, but on that form itself, you're going to ask the court uh, for the orders that you want and the modifications that you want. Um, and it says right on the t on the front line of the form, and this is used across the entire state, no matter what county you're in. Uh, just on top, you're you're going to be looking for either an order or a modification of child support and child custody, and. Um, there are self-help centers that can help you fill this out. Our office also offers document preparation services uh, for a flat fee sometimes to help you f uh, fill out these forms. And uh, you would just put that together, put all of your exhibits and attachments together, put a declaration together, and uh, submit that to, a, to the court and ask for a hearing. So a regular request for order hearing. A regular request for there's Pretty much everything for the court is a, is a request for order hearing, apart from you know, uh, divorce petitions and responses, and I think domestic violence. But almost everything else can fall under that and um, uh, get get the attention of the court to get you a hearing date to have to have the court make a decision um, for your matter. Very good, very good. Okay, I'm going to go to the next question. I'm planning to get divorced. Me and my wife did sign a prenup, thankfully. She <laughs> violated our she violated our infidelity clause. I do have proof from one of her recent Facebook posts. How can I bring this to light and make sure the agreement is upheld? 
So this is a, a really interesting question, um, and I see this this infidelity clause is um, most prevalent in in high net worth and celebrity cases, but I guess it can apply to everybody. Um, the fact that somebody uh, was unfaithful in the marriage is not really an issue for the court as far as getting divorced. You know, um, California is a no-fault state. Whether one party did something they weren't supposed to do within the confines of the marriage is, is not the court's consideration. Um, that's why the marriage breaks down based on irreconcilable differences. But where the issue of infidelity m might be worthwhile at looking at, and I would have to see this prenuptial agreement um, to verify it and uh, compare it against some uh, some case law, but uh, where this would be relevant is depending on when the infidelity happens, it probably triggers um, uh, amounts related to support. And uh, based on that factor, you could definitely bring the... Uh, prenuptial agreement to the court's attention, cite to that clause and explain how uh, the fact that one party was unfaithful um, uh, affects their ability to collect on spousal support or some other issue. So um, this would be through the same mechanism, um, either as evidence in your uh, uh, hearing or trial for child so or spousal support in a divorce proceeding, or um, if you recently discovered it, you can bring it to the court's attention via request for order and have it modify uh, your payment. So, uh, Vince, have you seen this uh, come to light before or, or be brought up in any case? I have seen it, but not in terms of a prenuptial agreement. And as we both know, um, neither party should be bringing up uh, the issue of infidelity uh, in divorce proceedings. Many years ago, California decided that uh, that was going to be irrelevant and really no one should be bringing, those, bringing that up to the court. Um, I remember reading someplace that if a lawyer did that, it could be considered an ethical violation in oh, a family wow. law case. But this is an this question has an interesting twist to it because it's actually part of a apparently part of a prenuptial agreement. Right. The, and, the and only thing is, I'm not sh I'm not sure unless the wife excuse me has admitted the infidelity. I'm not sure how this person is going to prove that in court. Like, what evidence does he have? So before right. he goes running to court saying, oh, she violated the clause in the prenuptial agreement, I hope he speaks to an attorney and they evaluate what evidence they have. Now, I've seen right. some strange things on uh, Facebook. I've never seen anybody, you know, having sex on Facebook. <laughs> um, so short of that, I'm not sure how he's, gonna, how he's going to prove that uh, short of an admission by, you know, the other spouse. Um, yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where social media is, is, is evolving in the in the area of family law and how it's used as evidence, I think, in all areas of the law. Um, if someone made a post showing, hey, this is me with my new boyfriend or this is us out at such and such place, um, you know, it really becomes an evidentiary battle as to whether those posts or uh, social media hits uh, uh, you know, are uh, proving of a of a certain fact of the infidelity. So um, it becomes a big evidentiary battle, which seems to be our theme theme for today. An important theme. Yeah. Very much um, so. Raj, I I think I did mention this to you, but I just uh, finished a case in Orange County, and it was a multi-day hearing. Um, and we were able to prevail in that matter. And one of the reasons why is because of evidentiary rules. Um, I was there. I, was I saw you to, in action. Ben. So I was able to keep out certain evidence, and I was able to get in certain evidence just by being familiar with the evidentiary rules. 
And I think I surprised one of the attorneys um, because I don't think she was, you know, used to uh, having to do that in family law court. Um, Sometimes I get the impression that uh, a lot of people like to do family law cases and forget about the code of evidence and to forget about the code of civil procedure and just, you know, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do it from the gut and what feels good. That's not the law. Family law courts are courts of law and equity and, you know, the code of evidence applies even when children are involved. I didn't tell you this, Raj, but uh, one of the, well, the minor's attorney had a few choice words for me during the proceedings about uh, how I should be concerned uh, about these people, about the child and not my client. And I politely, you know, told her, look, I, I represent, you know, the mother and uh, you represent the minor, and what I do is best for my client, and you, you know, you what you do is. Right. But it kind of annoys me when I when when people try to tell me how to uh, practice law in the heat of battle, you know. Yeah, okay, you, going I, to the I, next question. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I I was just going to uh, hammer that point a little bit, but um, I, you're very much correct in that in family law people tend to go by the gut and are surprised by rules of evidence um, but I think when uh, you know people come to this office and they see the way that, that we execute family law and the way that we litigate cases you know they'll find that uh, you know our attorneys are familiar with the code or our attorneys are familiar with the rules of evidence and um, we advocate in the interests of, of the children of course but also making sure that the court is making the decisions based on the appropriate uh, procedures and and evidence, and so um, when other attorneys see, see that we do that, they're not they're not always pleased, and it's, it's not always the best result for them either. Okay, Raj, we're going to go to the next question. It says a social worker visited my home yesterday evening. She wants to interview me and my family now. She says my child may be in danger because of a recent domestic domestic violence report I filed against my husband. If I get divorced, will they continue to visit me? How can I get rid of all these issues? <laughs> the the umbrella question, how can I get rid of all these issues? Vince, I think this is a question best answered by you. Um, uh, we've talked about before about how the issue of uh, juvenile dependency and family law tends to uh, commingle, but I think this is uh, your strategy area in dealing with with the department and social workers is is uh, the best best response here. Well, um, I don't have all of the facts, but just based upon the facts that I do have, um, I would advise you not to speak to the social worker. Can that be used against you in the future? Yes, it can. But sometimes, and this is the danger I see a lot, not all the time, but the danger I see a lot is um, the possibility or the probability that the social worker may confuse what you said, may misinterpret what you said, may twist or exaggerate what you say, or may even... You know, in some cases I've heard, you know, that they may even lie about what you say. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst thing possible, it would be a 10 if you talk to the social worker. If you don't talk to the social worker and the the social worker later says, oh, the mother didn't cooperate with me, she wouldn't talk to me, she lawyered up. You know, that may be, that's going to be, you know, that's going to look bad as well. But on a scale of 1 to 10, that's probably a 5. So you're left with, am I going to do a 5 or am I going to do a 10? Most people will say, I'll take the the lesser of the two evils and go with the 5. The easiest way for you to uh, make this go away or to try to make it go away is give us a call. But short of that... (laughs) 
Um, short of that, uh, you probably uh, don't want to talk to the social worker and, you know, tell the social worker that you're not going to talk to them. You know, if if they had evidence of child abuse or child endangerment, they would have taken your child away already. The only way they are going to get evidence against you is if you talk to them. So if you don't talk to the social worker, um, you know, they have 30 days to do an investigation. Um, it's going to be, I think they'll be hard-pressed to, to file a case and to take away your child. So that's my that's my two cents on how to make this go go away. You know, the additional part, I think one of the, the, the interesting parts about this question is if they get divorced, will they continue to visit me? Um, I've been seeing this more and more where uh, the tactic of calling for a welfare check or threatening to call CPS is used by one of the parties to either annoy or maybe actually create a problem. Um, what's your sort of experience and, and, and scope on that issue? I'm sorry, on what issue? Well, the fact how uh, parties can protect themselves when the other side uh, uses the threat of CPS or uses the threat of a welfare check to to aggravate the other side or, or maybe catch them slipping in some kind of way. You know, it's hard. It's very fact-specific. I mean, you know, um, every case is different. Every social worker is different. Um, you know, depending on the social worker's mood, depending on the social worker's relationship or lack thereof with the parent. I mean, it's hard to say. But in reality, there's no way to, to stop the other side from continuing to execute that strategy, from continuing to call CPS or continuing to call the police for welfare checks. You know... I would have to say that's different as well. Sometimes what happens is you get a social worker, one that comes out, says everything's okay. Next call is made. Same same allegation. Social worker two comes out and says, oh, there's a problem here. Um, and then, you know, another call is made. Same allegations. Social worker three comes out and it's like, you know, um, the end of the world. Oh, this you know, this is social. This is a child abuse, and we have to do something about it. So it really depends on the social worker and their training and their experience, or lack thereof. All right. Well, thanks, Vince, for that uh, for that response. Um, let's maybe go into our next question. Uh, before we do, Rush. Before we do that, I'm going to take a caller. Um, sure. And the the caller's the caller's number is area code three two three ending in O six. Yes, Hello, sister. this is attorney Hi, how are you? Yes. I'm fine. I'm just I'm okay. I am calling um to to have some advice. Um regarding my, my husband and I we uh we are going. I think he tried to divorce me. He married less than uh, six months, and uh, I've, I've, I'm trying to have experience like abuse, like emotional abuse and financial. I moved to his uh, city. I just found out like he's broke. He, you know how to do all. I said how to. I am myself uh, on a worker camp, and I'm, I make less. Mine less than uh, I have like income of thousand, and but uh, we just I have to pay food and all the expense, car, you know, gas, everything. And uh, I just I realized that his ex-wife she's too much involved in the relationship, and she has too much. He give her too much power, and he isolate me. I cannot say anything. And I was there at school, and I was so stressed because uh, it's, it's so distant. He's giving sh- cold shoulder. He's not talking to me. And he's been doing some open door. I don't do drugs. He's been doing that marijuana openly. 
and um, so many things I'm experiencing. So when I start talking, is he want to divorce, and uh, you know, he has take money from me. All those things. I'm do more help, and it's like he has to remove his money. You know, I have a lot of money in the bank. He just want to use that. So, but I don't mind with, to help. But he it's hiding his stuff, and he want to use me to buy the food, the gas, and this thing. And uh, when I found out, I, I know that his ex-wife was involved. He let her too much involved in our relationship. And and when I say something now, she will tell him that she she, she want him to get rid of me. So if not, she's going to take him to court, and she's not going to bring his son like a blackmailing. And uh, when I say something, he, he just... And I found out he started going on email, just online. I, I found all those um, emails he sent to other women. He posted things for, you know, to have affair with other married women. And and even at night, he, he does, you know, we just sleep on the edge of the bed. And it's too much. Recently, we were not, we are not even talking. I just when I say something again, I say, "Oh, I don't want to be be married. I rather be by myself." And and so I'm here in Los Angeles. He want me to, out of this life. So and the fact that I'm, I I know that he's using me, I'm trying to take all my belongings, the important things like my jewelry and my little asset and my bank. So I'm trying to see how I'm going to protect what I have because uh, it's, I don't know what to do. Whatever I do to please him is not enough. So I don't know what else to do. So my church people told me, you know, they they want me to get out, to go and take, take all myself because they know what it's going to hand out to. You know, they don't want me to die. And they don't want to go come, you know, try to discover me on the morgue. I don't really want to go, but they, they, they're afraid of my life. So I don't know, what I, you know. And he himself, he... he you want to, me to go because right now, when I was over there, it's not staying in the house and you could go back and forth outside, back and forth. You do things, I don't know, it's just like we are like a, like a stranger. I'm like a stranger in the, the house. So I don't know, I just need advice. <laughs> well, well, I went to my uh, bank. <laughs> that sounds like, that sounds like an, a, a terribly unfortunate situation. Um, you know, we we only have a few minutes left in our show, so I I don't know that I'll be able to give you a complete answer today. And um, uh, if that's the case, uh, I believe you've called our office before, but uh, I encourage you to call us uh, after the show today, and and maybe one of our uh, attorneys, either Vince or myself, can more completely answer your question. But um, essentially, you're you've come to the point where um, it's uh, it's a uh, fight or flight kind of situation. So it's either going to be that you're going to file for divorce and move on from the situation and or um you're going to stay in it. And so if the if your husband filed previously, we can find out what the status of that is. And if he hasn't filed, then, you know, we can begin a case on your behalf and investigate your assets and and find ways and mechanisms for you to protect as much of those things as possible. Yeah, because the you know um, the the church told me no, I have to do that because the way he's doing, he just want me to go. He say, okay, you know, uh, when what, before I was not saying it, when I started acting now, he said, oh, he doesn't want me to, he's like he want me out of there, and he know like I have a little bit of much. It's not much, but he's hiding all his money. But he told me, you know, whatever we have according to Lodo is for both of us, you know. So yeah. that is my thing, thing I have before maybe we have my two kids. So it's a little bit, it's not much, but it's something they want to have access. So how can, can I remove that out of my bank before? Because I know he, he's, he's, I don't know what contract or what uh, going on with he and his ex-wife. and It's too much. So uh, I'm trying to see if I can, what should I do? Go close my account? You know, so I don't know. Yeah, you know, if you if you came into the office, I I could figure out where all these accounts are or, and what you should do with each of them. Um, you know, as of right now, the two of you are still married, so you have as much right to that money as he does, um, and it's joint money. So um, no, not no, no, no. That is it. You don't have no joint money. This is my account before I marry him. 
me and my oh, son. Oh, if you're, if, you're, if you're accountant before you married him and you've put in no money since the time you were married, no paychecks, no nothing, then that would be 100% yours. But, you know, we would have to do uh, an assessment of that account and, and and make sure so that you're not in violation of the law. But, um, yeah, you know, because when like I, I went said, to we're running, that... we're, okay. we're running out, of, out of time today, so I, I'd love to answer more of your question. Um Okay. Uh, and I, I, I know that you've called our office before, so uh, we'll we'll take uh-huh. a look at it, and I'll, I'll speak with one of our case managers, and, and we'll see what we can do for you. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you well, for calling. It's, thank it's, you. For, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. Thank you for calling. Uh-huh. Okay. Bye. Raj, before we um, end the show, I want to try to handle one more call. Oh, excuse me. One more um, question. And okay. it's, I have joint custody. I have joint custody of my four children. I am looking into getting a restraining order against my ex-husband. Will this affect our custody order already in place? Um, I think we addressed this, this issue earlier in the show about domestic violence and how it impacts custody. But um, definitely, if you're going to seek a restraining order against your husband. Um, among the th- persons you might ask for protection are your children. And um, you can make this uh, modification of temporary custody on, through the DV forms. It's in the DV 105. You can ask for any modifications in custody. And so um, when there's domestic violence, you, uh, you know, a parent not only has to look out for themselves, they have to look out for their children as well. And so um, if you're going to file a, a restraining order in that way, it can... Uh, most definitely. The issue of custody will be before the court, and the fact if there's a finding of domestic violence, it will definitely have an impact on custody. I wonder if um, it's hard to read between the lines. And she said she had joint custody of four children. I wonder if that is joint physical custody where she's sharing... Uh, you know, some type of custodial or fifty-fifty with her uh, with her ex-husband. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, it's one of those things that a little more information is needed. But depending on how how the custodial arrangement is now, uh, it would, there could be some, none, or complete change depending on a finding of domestic violence. Okay, Raj, we're coming to the end of the show. Why don't you tell our listeners, because I'm still getting calls about this, about our mediation program. Sure. Um, so for those of you who haven't listened to our show before, our firm offers uh, several uh, structures in which we can assist you. We offer um, document preparation services for a flat fee. We offer uh, litigation for uh, litigation services for a flat fee where we'll um, do a specific set of services for a flat rate and potentially appear for you at a hearing. Uh, we also offer what's called unbundled services, which is depending on where you at, are at in your divorce or custody matter, we can help you with a specific defined set of services at a specified rate. And then uh, we also offer the traditional firm structure where or uh, attorney-client fee agreement where a client pays an initial retainer, we work against that retainer, and then you know we bill accordingly um, for any work that exceeds the retainer. And what we're excited to offer and what we're uh, continuing to do here at the firm is uh, mediated divorce cases. And uh, you know clients often come into our office and they ask, well, how much is this whole process going to take? And as an attorney and an officer of the court, I have no way of knowing. Um, cases that look simple upon presentation uh, can explode with a whole bunch of new facts, discovery, um, additional work that nobody planned on doing. And so it would be unfair for me to quote clients at a specific rate, and it would be unfair for me to hold, hold myself to that as well. So what we do is offer mediated divorce in which for a flat fee, uh, we offer parties who are reasonably amicable to come in and uh, mediate their divorce process. Um, we're not acting as an advocate for either side, but assisting parties in completing the divorce process and presenting it to the court to get your, your case completed. 
Um, in the event that either side uh, decides that the mediation process isn't working, you can still go forward with a court hearing. Um, it's just that our office could not represent either side. Um, we do this for a flat fee. It includes all correspondence for, with an attorney, document preparation services, investigation, and submissions to the court and court fee. So um, it's a great service that we're excited to offer here at the office, and uh, we look forward to more people utilizing it. Thank you, Raj, and we're out of time. We'll see you next week on the radio.